Okay, we're here at Morning Black. We've got some guests today. Uh, Vanessa Verner and Joshua Jackson, along with our co-host Byron Martin doing Morning Black. I'm your co-host Greg Jones, and this is WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. We're going to be taking a look at some of the very important issues that are impacting the community today. And um, certainly I'm sure that everyone has been part of uh, the media buzz that's been going on in terms of Minnesota, Kentucky now, um, Indianapolis. There's, There's just things starting to take off. And so there's an important question that's been put on the floor by Byron. You want to pose that question again, Dr. Martin? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Good morning, everybody. I think um, the question we want to pose today is um, one that is, is really rich and is one that I saw online and was kind of spurring on social media is what, what are black people supposed to be doing at the moment that they see another black person getting killed um, by the state or by the police? Uh, what should they be doing? What, what should be our reaction? Should it just be to film it? Should it just be uh, to stand there and bear witness? Or, or should we actually be getting involved and be moving around and trying to uh, preserve that life um, by any means necessary? So what, 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 is, what is the response of uh, black people when they see another black person being killed by the, by the state? Now, before we begin, I want you all to kind of introduce yourselves and tell who you are and, you know, where you're from and, you know, and then go into this particular subject matter. So let's start with Vanessa. Hello. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Vanessa Berner. Um, I am a budding sociologist starting my uh, Ph.D. program at Texas A&M in the fall in uh, sociology. I just finished a second master's degree in sociology at Texas Southern University, and I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, so um, elements of social justice and information about um, kinky and doctor and all of that is deeply embedded within me, (laughs) Um, being that I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, born and raised, so glad to be with you all this morning, Um, and I'll let Joshua, I guess he'll respond before I respond to the question. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm Joshua Jackson. I currently serve as the senior minister at the Royal Hill Church uh, in Antioch, Tennessee. Uh, I originally hail from Wichita, Kansas, uh, born and raised. Uh, did my undergrad work at Abilene Christian University, my MDiv at Emory University, Cambridge School of Theology. And I've ministered in churches in Atlanta, Texas, and Florida. And currently, like I said, I'm here in the Nashville area. Uh, my work deals a lot with racial uh, unity and looking at racial justice and also looking at leadership development in churches. Okay, so let's let's uh, chime in on this question then. What do you do in the moment? Uh, you see the individual, whoever he or she might be, uh, they're being restrained by the police. It appears that this individual is uh, in duress in terms of their health. They, they, they're saying things like, I can't breathe. Uh, you're seeing uh, asphyxiation taking place. You see officers surrounding this individual or, and continuing to do the kinds of things. And we've seen this on media a lot. I mean, the, the, the young man that got body slammed on 79th Street in Chicago, slammed into the curb. It's one, one thing that pops into my mind. But what do you do in the moment? As Byron would uh, ask us, and I guess a lot of people are asking this question, what do we do in the moment when we see somebody being victimized like this? Yeah, I, um, I guess I'll start here. Um, there are several images popping into my mind, and I've seen this question 
um, circulating online as well, Byron, um, about what should happen in the moment. I think in particular for the George Floyd case, if I'm not mistaken, there was a teenage girl who actually recorded um, what was going on with him. And she has um, now said that she feels very traumatized um, by having witnessed um, that whole incident. And so I don't know if I'm ready to say that I would want teenagers to engage in um you know, putting their own bodies, their own person within the situation to kind of get the cops to stop or to deflect or to interact. But I will say on the flip side, I saw another video out of Washington, D.C., where there was like a full brawl between grown men and the police officers. And at that moment, you know, it, it was really scary to watch. I mean, they were in a full fight as if they were, you know, just um, peers of each other. But in all actuality, no one died and there were no gunshots. Like it was, it just was a full fist fight. So there is something to be said. At least their lives were preserved um, and they fought back in that moment. Now they were arrested, of course, but at least we don't have anyone that's actually dead. So the question is, is like there is a risk at any point, right? Because if people were to engage, the police have, uh, they, you know, the law is typically on their side. In many cases, they could pull out a gun. They could start to shoot um, whoever starts to engage in these, um, in these arrests or whatever the case may be. But then sometimes it doesn't happen that way. And they are forced to just kind of defend themselves in the way that they should defend themselves. Um, and then you'll just take care of it later. Because I don't think that anyone's life should end at that moment. But there is always that risk that they will um, that they will take action that could end your life. And I guess it's, it's on the people that are around um, to decide if they want to take their risk or not. Um, but then we wouldn't have these videos. So, you know, we wouldn't have the witness of what has actually happened um, if the folks that are recording jumped in. But And I, that's a trade-off because would we rather the videos or would we rather them stop it right there in action? I, it's kind of a hard, it's kind of a hard call. No, I, I completely agree, and I think that there's some nuance to this that makes it even more complex, and simply for the fact that when you see that uniform, it, it means something, or it should. It's supposed to, to signify something, that these individuals are, from what we've been taught as young people, from growing up in the system, that these are supposed to be people who are supposed to serve and protect you, and to watch them abuse you is a conflict within yourself that you have to witness. And so then, you're having to make a, a judgment call on somebody else's life and you're saying, but this person is supposed to be protecting them and not killing them. And so then am I supposed to be the one now who's actually going to be the just one and actually take vengeance out or actually perform violence on an individual who's supposed to be nonviolent and protecting me? Like that in itself is a conundrum within your own mind that you're having to think through that and process that in the moment. And so not only is that happening, but then there's the inherent risk. Like uh, our sister said, like, there, you very well could lose your life. That's You're putting yourself in a harm's way, and you don't know how this is going to end. And if there is no video, and I mean, we know this from history. It wasn't like they just started killing young black and brown people yesterday. We just now, in the last few years, we've been able to record them and document them in ways that they didn't do previously. You know, the work that they've done with the Equal Justice Initiative in terms of finding these lynchings and things like that, you know, they had to go back and research. Now we see them publicly because we have the film evidence of it. And for some people, they're amazed that this is happening. And it's like, well, we've been saying this all along. We just didn't have the evidence to show it. 
And so I think that there's just so much to this uh, that's just difficult to wrestle through. But I think that ultimately we're going to have to make that decision. And I can speak for myself that in those situations, uh, based on who I am as a person and what my beliefs are, uh, I would have to get involved. Uh, I recognize that there is an inherent cost in that, but I don't believe that for whatever reason that that situation took place in Minneapolis, that that individual deserved to lose their life, uh, especially not at the hands of the people who have sworn to serve and protect the community. Uh, there's no crime that fit uh, for them to lose their life in that manner, especially. Byron? Yeah, no, I think <laughs> that's why I'm glad we posed this question. I think it's a tough, tough answer. That situation is one that I wish nobody had to deal with first and foremost, right? And the, the, the situation with George Floyd in, in, in Minneapolis, right? Yeah, it was a, it was a teenage a girl that was like video recording. But in that recording, I see other grown men coming up and coming around and at least yelling at the police, challenging them in some way. I saw the white EMT worker cross the street um, video recording from the other way, um, and she was saying, get off of him, like, I can, like, check his pulse, something, right? But I guess I wonder, because we're, we're in these spaces and it's becoming more, more common, right? Like, if, if we're just standing back, then we're always going to have bodies to count, right? So right now, what I'm seeing is that we're always going to have bodies to count if we're just standing back and, and video recording, because... I'm saying, if you think about it, we've had about eight years at least of these recordings. And then if you want to go back uh, to Rodney King, how many years of, of, of these recordings, right? And behavior has not shifted or changed, right? So what this tells me is that we need intervention, right? Like, like if you see something, not only do you need to say something in these events, you need to do something. I, I'm compelled that... I'd, I'd have to intervene. Like I, I'd have to. I'd have to get in the mix some way. Um, personally, I, there is a cost, right? And we know that there's a cost. But I think the flip side, there's a there's a cost if you don't, right? There's 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 the cost of of your own guilt, right? It haunting you, like never having another night's sleep. But also the cost of if it keeps becoming common and comfortable for police to kill black bodies, right? If that keeps becoming more and more comfortable, one of the things you run the, 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 the numbers on is that sooner or later, that's gonna come your way, right? And my thought is if I'm the person who's handcuffed and somebody's knees on my neck, at the end, of, I would've wanted somebody to at least try. Like my begging point would be like, I would just at least want you to try. Well, I've done it twice. I went to jail once for it. And second time, I, I got caught the ire of my uh, landlord. Say more. Well, the one my, my best friend, was we were playing basketball up in Stony Island Park. And there were some guys getting drunk on the bench. Police pulled up and started interacting with them. My best friend was basically getting some water from the water fountain. He was grabbed and brought into the melee. I intervened and said, well, look, he's, he was playing basketball. Look, he's sweating all over. And in the mix, I ended up going to jail, too. So, you know, that was the first time. The second time, a guy broke into the house. 
And uh, I chased him down because I was about 50 pounds lighter then. You know, it was a long time ago. My landlord is a, was an off-duty policeman. He, he was running with me. He couldn't catch him. I caught the guy. And my landlord wanted to stomp him. He started stomping him. And so I intervened there. And my landlord got really, really, really ticked off at me. Because as I had, I made a citizen's arrest. You know, just held the guy down because he was a crackhead. And, you know, my landlord started stomping on him. You know what I'm saying? And I, I, I just basically put my body between the guy and my the off-duty police officer. And he got, I mean, he, 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 he never treated me the same after that. I, mean, I never got treated the same way because of other interventions. All I'm saying to you is you can do it, but it's a cost. It's a real cost to it. You know, uh, even if you're not, you don't have to get like physical with the police. You can just put yourself between the person and the police officer, but you're still going, you're going to pay the price for that. I'm not sure our, our community is organized to do that. There was mm -hmm. a time in, in our community that we were organized. There, were, there was a time in our community where people always carried a camera. There was at least four people. A person carried a camera, a person that was going to be the spokesman, a person who was basically just going to listen to everything that said, and a person that was going to intervene. Called it, it was called a cell of four. And, and, and that's how you operated. You stayed in cars like that. When police pulled people over, they had to deal with four people, not just one individual. And you never went out in the community by yourself. You always had at least four, uh, a cell of four with you. But that was a different time. That was before people thought that everything was over and things are safe. Yeah, but I'm sure I'm showing my age there. I'm sorry. No, I think that that's a, um, that's a really valid point, actually, um, because unfortunately, and this is not in any effort whatsoever to laud or, um, you know, even praise um, on any level what we saw in Michigan or in any of those other um, protests where we had these white men that were standing out in front of Capitol buildings with AR-15 guns and all that kind of stuff. But we've seen these comparisons of um, these different protest movements and various different things like that. We noticed that, one, there was, um, you know, they, they had all these guns. They were very organized. They were very intentional um, about how they were out there, and the police did not um, engage with them in the same ways that we've seen over the last couple of days with these protests where people are more peaceful and it seems um, that, I, I don't want to say that they're completely disorganized, but this, this it has some elements where it looks like it's a little more um, hodgepodge. They don't have on, they're not like uniform or anything like that. And I think those other folks just kind of presented that way. And that, that element of um, organization does present more um, of a barrier um, that creates some type of hesitancy for the police to even engage because in their minds they're probably thinking, oh, well, they do have some type of united front, it seems. Let's just, you know, it's, it becomes more of a standoff. So if you have the sale of four um, where people are very much, um, you know, saying, look, if you take this one person down, you got to take all of us down, that might actually help to mitigate some of what's going on um, and that may that those that may have played a role in what we saw, um, like I said, in the differences between these um, these standoffs that we've seen between citizens and um, the police um, when we, you know, 
are considering, like I said, those folks, the white, the white folks that were standing out in front of the Capitol buildings and stuff, talking about their rights were being violated, they don't want to wear a mask, reopen the state, blah, 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 um, versus all these folks that are protesting about um, George Floyd dying or Breonna Taylor dying um, in um, Kentucky or either the folks in Memphis and folks in Phoenix, um, they are just so much more willing to engage. And I know there's a racial element there, but I'm just speaking specifically about the organizational piece. Well, you know, you have a historical precedent that mm-hmm. Deacon took defense uh, with the churches in the South, mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. in Memphis, Tennessee, and other mm-hmm. areas, mm-hmm. basically, that basically provided a model for the Black Panther Party. Absolutely. Okay, historically, the Deacons of Defense, which were deacons of local churches who basically said, you're not going to burn down our church. Absolutely. And, and we're going to defend our church, and we're gonna, we'll do our best to record, you know, who's trying to do this. But uh, we're going to watch out for our folks. We're going to make sure that when our church is active, you know, we're going to have people there. And uh, we're going to we'll escort people, you know, from the church to their homes if necessary. We'll do what we need to do in order to patrol our communities so that these things don't happen. You, and, and it's an intentionality of organizing. I guess what I'm frustrated with is that this, this whole uh, kind of Facebook, you know, social media, uh, you know, outrage that takes place every time some of this has been happening. And this has been happening, I mean, you know, I start organization around Trayvon Martin dealing with this stuff. I mean, you know, and that's been a long time ago. I mean, you know, we're talking about at least 10 years ago, Absolutely. you know, that we've been dealing with this kind of stuff. And and follow, we can go further back. This is That's just a, a recent phenomenon. But we can go back 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, you know, 100 years. Um, I don't think you can talk your way through this. I don't think that, you know, you can meet your way through this. I think that you're going to have to be, you're going to have to intervene. And I mean, you know, if you want it to stop, it's not going to stop unless you intervene. And only question is, you know, how you intervene, you know? Yeah. But I guess I have a, and not to try to shift the conversation too much, but what is the, how do we deal with the the mental impact of that? So like this young lady who's recording this, like that is traumatic, like to actually have to really film, but to actually watch someone die, like, and not just watching someone die, but in the sense of, you know, how do you process that? Where is that ability to process that? And, and so I'm looking at kind of the aftermath of that. And I'm thinking specifically for us as a people, I mean, there's been so much trauma undealt with trauma mental and emotional damage that has happened generationally some of which we did to each other simply for survival like you know our parents traumatized us to help us to make it through this country uh thinking they were doing what was best but you know i when do we help each other in that because it's not just that you have to intervene you also have to be able to process your intervention and how you're going to go about functioning in this. And I don't know if we have the, the systems in place and the resources in place to help work through the rest of that. So as you were talking, uh, Dr. Jones, about, you know, having, you know, the cell four, there's also an ability within that community uh, and even, you know, the deacons of defense, there was a way of talking through certain things and providing care for one another so that people were in healthy places and in healthy spaces when they did have to intervene and when they had to protect one another and how they process engagement uh, through those difficult times. 
And so how well, do you Reverend, put those other things in place? Well, Reverend, I mean, you know, isn't, isn't that the vocation of the church? I would say yes. I, I would say, that? unfortunately, we don't do a great job of that anymore. I, I would say that. Then, then uh, when these kinds of times present themselves, maybe what we're talking about is retooling the purpose of these congregations. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm as excited about perfected praise as anyone else. But I also would like some kind of perfected counseling for that young lady and some kind of processing that would take place to, to ensure some safety in the community. You know? But I mean, I'm just, I'm just raising the issue. So you guys got to respond to it. What do you say? No, Josh, say, I, Dr. Martin. Go ahead, Nessa. No, I was going to just respond to um, what Joshua was, was just saying because that is something that came to my mind. Um, in all actuality, everyone it does respond to um, different incidences in different ways. So some have a fight or flight um, response and some just freeze when they're actually, when they're in fear. Um, and so uh, the one person I thought of is my niece. Um, um, we talked about an incident that she faced um, in Chicago not too long ago uh, where there was um, a man that, you know, it was a whole situation, but all she could do was freeze. Like she was just literally frozen. She didn't know what to do. And thank God nothing um, happened to her physically. There you know, there's some other things that did transpire, but she got, she got away from the situation, but she was like, she just couldn't do anything. So I think there is that element there where, um, someone may start recording because they really don't know what else to do. They don't know. They don't, they, their response isn't to jump in. Um, and I think that we have to hold some space of respect for, um, that being where they are mentally, they just don't know, they can't physically engage or they don't know what to do or they're just kind of stunned um, emotionally. And if you have um, come through lots of trauma and you've experienced various different things, um, we don't know what has been happening in these people's lives that lead up to these moments where they're in this moment. So um, that could cause them either to fight or to freeze or to flee. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have no idea. But I think therein, like, even as we talk about intervention, right, even from, from a physical, like, like Doc said, getting in between the officer and, and, and the individual, and, and as we're talking even about the, the care and the, the, the trauma-informed care that church is being prepared to do that, I think we have to go back not only to this organizational space um, and have that conversation, right, because we have to be organized to do that, but golly, we got to go back to some real deal training of ourselves and equipping ourselves to be able to do that. You know, we, we said, we said like, Hey, I, yeah, I would, I would have to get involved. Right. But I mean, I've been in some physical altercations in my life. Right. Like, so I feel fairly confident of how I react in those, in those times. Right. <laughs> like, um, I feel you ran in a buck if somebody hey, knows. Yeah. I've, 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 I've uh, I, I, See, I don't know that colloquial. I'm too old for that. I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. Y'all got to keep me informed now. You just took me out the loop. I'm sorry. Basically, he ready to fight with somebody to come down. Oh, okay. Right. So I've been in some of those situations before. Earrings and Vaseline. I got it. Earrings and Vaseline. I got it. I got but it. But I think, you know, like a lot of times we don't know how people will react, you know, like Nessa was saying, we don't know how people respond in those things. And I don't want to put somebody in a position and saying, our, our response as a black community should be to 
you know, shield and go in and do that. And they're not equipped to do that. Right. I, I've, I've, I know how to roll through a fall. Right. Like I know how to like take a punch. Right. But not have it like really, really, you know, affect me because I've been in some situations where I've had to do that before. Right. Um, and so we have to, I think to a certain extent, not that organization has to be surrounding some training in our community, but I think it has to be a proactive training that trains the response uh, in those times, right? And trains people how to read the situations and what they should do in those situations. I think it's talking through scenarios inside your communities, inside the churches, right? And then saying, okay, and when that happens, when that moment happens, here's what we'll do as a community, right? Here's our communal response, or here's our church response, right? Like, so if... Um, do you leave the police out of that? Oh, I... I, I, I remember what Josh was saying. Now, Josh, it said we don't. We're not trained to see these individuals as adversarial. We're seeing. We're 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 we've been we've been socialized to see the police to serve and protect. So my question is, do you leave in organizing people? And I agree with you 100. percent Do you leave the police out of that process? Is this something just the community does? I think I think it's something the community does, but ah. I, I think it can it can only be done in Right, to say a police officer is not a member of the community or part of the community or not in the community, not touching the community in some way is, is obtuse, right? Like, no, they are. But I think one of the things that we have to get into is saying we need to test the spirit of these state officials because when they're in that capacity, they are operating with the power of the state as, a, a, as a, the local constabulary for the state. <clears throat> and is there to execute the state's will in that space they are not they're not in there exercising um anything but the state's will and this is a, a side step side side comment from that right if anybody doesn't believe that an officer is acting on behalf of the state right then they're 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 lost they don't know what police officers are for right and it and while we've been socialized to say they're here to protect and serve, if we go back and read just a little bit, they're here and to protect and serve property. Hey, that's they're it. not here to protect and, and, and serve individuals. That's why you have your Second Amendment, right? They're here to protect and serve property, right? And so that's, that's where we have to actually condition ourselves to actually think clearly about what police are actually here for. Okay, well, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with that, but at the same time, should you not be involving them in a process that's going to be reactive toward their behavior? In that, in that they are the constabulary, they are the one that, on a normal day, on a day that you are are not trying to stop somebody from being killed, you allow them to assume the responsibility. To interpret the law, and so the question. So, so, so my my simple question is: it's, it's just a social question. Yeah. Do you do you do you take do you take the the the, the time to help that constabulary understand where you're coming from? So, do you? There, there's two ways I can read that question, and then I'll I'll be quiet for the rock. There are two ways I can read that question. I can either read it as you asking, "Do we allow the fox in the hen house?" 
or <laughs> I can read that um, as, as, as a comment of saying, if there are conscious members of police units that we can partner with, not the whole police unit, but individuals that we can partner with to make what we're doing that much more efficient or safer than maybe. But right now, that feels like it would be a little more, to do that right now would feel like it's a little more fox in the hen house. Well, I mean, why would you, why would you even assume the fox was never, the fox has always been in the hen house, hasn't it? When has the fox not been in the hen house? Name a time. I'm saying, I, I, and so when you, Wait, you were asking that question, that, that was the assumption I was going on. Y'all didn't hear me? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, we heard, yeah, for sure. No, no, so, and that's what, and that's what, so when Byron was giving his, when he was talking through this, the question, that's what I was, I was working off that, that I think that there's always been a fox in the in-house. Like, and I think that's been part of our, our naivety is that we haven't addressed that. There's always been people, even a part of the black community, when we were a community who were in it for themselves. Not everybody was looking out for the well-being of the community. There were people who were in it for themselves and not just people who were law officials. But I think that part of what, what we're going to have to do or what we need to do uh, is that we have to establish some parameters about what we look for law enforcement to do in our communities uh, in part of our training of one another. That, you know, this is the time when you call 911. This is the time when you call the people in the community. Uh, we take care of these issues on our own. We allow them in our spaces for these circumstances. Uh, so we have to be careful when we invite them into our space and for what reasons, what things are we going to police and what things are we going to deal with on our own and what things are we going to then allow them to step inside of our spaces for? Uh, because once we give them free license to come in our space for anything, then at that point, they are the authority figures, whether we want them to be or not, that's just the way it is. And so I think part of our training and part of our conversation has to be, you know, what are those what are those boundaries where we say this is us? We're going to deal with this versus saying we're going to ask the state to be, you know, judge, jury and executioner for this. Thing. Uh, because well, as soon as they step on the forefront, they are. Isn't that what happens in the body? You know, in the body, you know, some things are taken taken care of by the Young Men's Association. You know. Everybody don't run up in Crenshaw and in Eaglewood all the time. In other words, there's some boundaries set by some folks who say, well, you know, you can't come in here and do that. You can come in here and do this, but you can't come in here and do that. I'm just asking the question, is that something that should shift from just young men's associations making those decisions to maybe the church making those decisions? Maybe, you know, community leadership making those decisions. I think, um, Dr. Dr. Jones, I'll, I'll have to say, because the, um, the terminology, how we've been socialized kind of brought, was brought up. So I think it's important for us to understand how those that are in law enforcement have been socialized so we can get it, so we can always kind of be at the forefront. We can't just think about our own socialization and how we've been told to think of these people as partners in the community and that they are with us and that we should go to them and they uphold the law and all this kind of stuff. Like we rely on those um, those notions of, of how we're supposed to be uh, socialized around them. But they have been socialized completely differently. And so as Byron said, they are actors or arbiters of the state 
first and foremost. And that I say that as someone who is related to folks in law enforcement, and this gets me in trouble all the time, but I have a clear understanding that you ain't necessarily down for me all the time. You're down for whatever your job is. And so um, and I think that we have tried over time uh, to kind of speak to Joshua's point to build some type of coalition or to try to work with them or build some type of boundaries and all that kind of stuff. But I think that we have to be pretty active, um, actively thinking about um, that there's always going to be an element of them being for law enforcement and being for the state and not being for the community because they have some self-preservation element. Um, and so is I, I don't want to say that they're completely sold out, but I get how people get to that, <laughs> to that conclusion when they feel like, Oh, well, if you were part of the police force, like, nah, you're not with us. You with, you with the whole other uh, set of people. Um, because there, there's been so much betrayal, there's been so much backstabbing, there's been there's been these boxes in the hen house um, continuously, and even to speak about uh, last night's protest, um, of course, in all peaceful protests, there's people that are, there are plants that are sent in to kind of escalate what's going on, and there was very clear evidence of and video of. Uh, someone in law enforcement that was going around busting windows um, at an auto zone and at other different buildings in Minneapolis to kind of heighten or to kind of elevate what was happening out there. So while people were peacefully protesting, they were inciting violence to get people to react even more violently. Um, right. So if we take these things into consideration and even the church, because the church honestly has been bought many times um, as trying to be these, um, folks to kind of bring along peace and kind of bring everybody together. and You know, they, they praise and laud um, law enforcement and all that kind of stuff. Um, sometimes they buy into these notions um, to their own default as well, because that's, that's not necessarily always being for the community because um, these parameters haven't been set. All right, folks. So where we go? What's next? So I think I, I I mean I think that's that's the spot on question right like what what should what should our response be in, in my opinion I think inside of each local community where Black folks are they got to say here um, for us that are here in Valpo like Black folks here in Valpo okay what are we what are we gonna do in our community about this what are we agreed upon doing um, you know I would say you know if if we see something like this in our community. Are we prepared to react? No. Okay. What are what are what are we prepared and willing to do in this community? All right. We're prepared to do this. How are we training ourselves to do that consistently in our community? And, and then from there, the next question is: Okay. Then what are our meeting spaces? What are our connection spaces for when this happens? For us to gather together and start working on executing the plan. I think that is. Um, has to be the, the, the question, right? And it's not just organization. It's not just organization to say, oh, we got our list served, ready to go. I think it's organization with a purpose and equipping individuals so that there's at least some clear understanding about where people are willing and ready to go. You know, I know sometimes you exist in a space where people are saying, hey, I, I can't do any violence. I, I'm, that's, not, that's not my MO. I'm not, I'm not for that. I'm not carrying any guns. I'm not carrying any knives, no sticks, no nothing. I'm just... Hey, I'll I'll sacrifice my body, but I'm not. I can't do that. That's 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 my line of sand. Well, we we need to know that 
before we in we we in the trenches together in the in the foxholes trying to deal with the situation. We need to know where where people stand on on issues and on things. Um, the, you, you mentioned the deacons of defense. I think the beautiful thing about the story of the deacons of defense is that not only did they have patrol, they had the phone tree, and they knew who was calling who and how they trained on how they were getting up to the roofs of their house so they could see people and where they were coming from inside the community. Right? They knew um, if if this person was shooting, who was their backup? Right? Like so. Okay, we know that we need ground people there too. So if this person shooting on the roof, we're doing this on the ground to support this. They they had that clear training. Now most of the deacons of defense um, were returning World War II vets, so they had some they had some previous training that equipped them for that. I think one of the things that we have to do is to get in a space where we're training ourselves to think tactically, but also to think strategically about what is what is in our best interest. Right? Like, are we even are we even buying our houses strategically for a situation like this? Do we live so far apart that we can't even begin to help each other? I live on the north side of town. The, the community that I choose to be a part of is on the south side of town. Now, I can't even be in proximity when something goes down, right? And so we strategy doesn't start when something pops off. I think it starts with our everyday decisions that keep us in a tactical formation to respond to what's going on. Rip, what you say about that? Rip Jackson? No, I, I, so uh, I think the what Byron said about the, the strategic part is, is definitely a, a good point. I think, but I think we have to go a step further. I think we have to go back a step further. Uh, and I think we, we really have to re, reclaim a sense of soul care. And, and what I mean by that is that we, as black people, have been so, we are, we're so hurt. There's just so many negative emotions and so much pain in who we are as people. Uh, and pain manifests itself in so many different ways, but pain is an energy. It is an emotion that is energy charged, and it has to go somewhere. Uh, and so it's not just about getting people together, because you get a bunch of angry people together and bad things can happen. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to do something positive with that anger. And so I really believe that the church has to do a better job of pastoral care. We need, uh, we really, we need therapy. We need counseling. We need clinicians who understand the plight of black Americans and what we go through and what we've been experiencing to help us to work through that in ourselves, uh, so that when we do come together collectively, we can do positive things and we can strategically put things in place. Uh, because I, don't, I think if we don't take those steps, if we're not healthy individuals, we will not be a healthy collective. We will not be a healthy community. But then I also think that we really have to begin to retool ourselves and rework the, the programming that we've been given. Uh, I don't know too many other black communities anymore. There were times when there were black communities. We have not just been spaced out. We have, honestly, we have destroyed our own communities in the sense of, of trying to attain whiteness. And, and that's not a negative for black people, but whiteness as a system, we, okay. have, we have put that as the success marker. And so what it means to be successful in America as a black person is to obtain what they have or to live where they live and do what they do. And so in that formation, we have destroyed our own community recognizing that in those places, I don't benefit from the same structures and systems that they are privileged of. And then we get frustrated and uh -huh. irritated because I can't get what they get and I don't get the same treatment they get, which again causes more self-harm and self-damage. And I don't care how much money you make, I don't care how many letters you have after your name, it does not absolve you from the fact that in America as a black person, male or female, the systems just are not the same for you. That's just what it is. There's no way of getting around that. And so I think to 
try to live in that facet or try to give off this facade that somehow racism and, you know, these things don't touch us and won't affect us, that, that, that's just false. And unfortunately, and, and I see this in the church, is that we have churches uh, where you have members who've, in a quote-unquote, you know, made it, whatever that means in whatever terms, and then those who've remained in whatever black community is still residing, and there's a difference between that because of status and social economic clout. And so we don't even see ourselves as together because of those things. And we look at the, the problems of those who are black middle class versus the black blue collar and those who are working class, but we don't experience the same thing anymore. Well, we might not experience it exactly the same, but trust me, the black experience has a lot of nuances to it, but there's a lot of overlap and a lot of similarities. Just because we can't necessarily, just because we don't live in the same zip code or we don't make the same income or our kids don't go to the same school does not mean that we're so different as a people. But we've been taught and we've been trained to see ourselves that way and to the extent that we've given up on each other. Uh, and I, I think trying to get together is so hard because of these things that have pulled us apart uh, that trying to start with Byron starting, I think if we still had more black communities, I think it'd be an easier step. But I think the fact that we don't have many black communities left uh, because of what's happened uh, and we've had so much damage in those communities, uh, I think we got to do some individual repair first. Vanessa? I'm so glad Reverend Jackson brought, <laughs> Jackson brought that up because that is exactly where my head was going, that we have to take it back. Like that first step has to be um, our conceptualization of what a community is. We don't, we have disbanded our communities. I agree with you 100%, Joshua. I don't know too many um, black communities that have that consistency like that, or that when you live in them, that they actually know their neighbors. It's like, hey, Miss Jones down the street or the candy lady, like we used to have when we were kids, or we knew who the guys were that may have been out there uh, fixing their cars, but we knew when something went down, they were looking out. Like, we knew who our neighbors were. We know who these people are. We go to church with them. We go to kids school with each other, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we, to um, get to these other higher levels of success, um, essentially, you're absolutely right. We have um, dispersed all over the place, um, and we live in these other spaces uh, where, we don't necessarily have a concept or an idea of ownership or of community. So um, to bring it back to um, kind of what we're seeing right now, um, as far as these protests are concerned, people are upset that they're, um, and they keep on throwing out these terms of like, they're burning down their own community. They're burning down their own businesses. They're not gonna have grocery stores um, there. And they're, and they're all concerned about these buildings falling down. But what they don't understand is that the people that are out there protesting, they don't have any self-ownership to those establishments. You got a big target in the middle of the neighborhood. Nobody cares that your big box store is being uh, <laughs> being burned down. That's a billion-dollar corporation. They can replace that building in the blink of an eye. They don't have any ownership or any stake in that target. They may go shop there, but there's no one that they can walk up to to say, I know this person is the shop owner of this particular place, right? So that has been it's replaces the idea and the notion of a community of there's something to preserve because there's nothing being really funneled back in to even help them stay a community um, or even uh, I think there was some Indian restaurant that's out there but then it's a, it's a question of even if those folks that own that restaurant live in that community they may own a place in that in those in the black space 
but do they actually live there? Are they um, a part of that community, essentially? They are, I guess, if their business is there, but they don't necessarily live there. So, like, it's all about this personal, it's all about more of a connection um, that we have with our idea of who is in our community uh, before we can even protect the community because we don't know of a community to protect. So many people are isolated and individualized. And then that, that bleeds over into the church. As um, Joshua was just mentioning, um, and Byron and I have had several conversations about big mega churches and my issue with that <laughs> and how um, we kind of move into these ideas of what success is um, and we keep growing and growing and growing, expanding, expanding, expanding with these larger churches, and we lose that community feel because then it turns into just another large institution that we're a part of that we don't really, really identify with. Well, wait a minute now, because uh, you young people use this term a lot, and like I said, I, I keep being generational. You use a term called legacy, and one of the things I was thinking about when I was watching the rioting last night and watching the rioting today is that. Do, do the people who are rioting have the same concept of legacy as you do? And if, you, if they don't, then is there a, a definitive class difference in terms of how people are responding to the kinds of things that are happening? I mean, you know, if we could take a poll, for example, and, and ask the question, you know, how many of the people who are, are going through trauma and, and changes on the street are church folk? Are people who are involved in organizations that are doing positive things in the community? Or is there a fragmentation there that has, it has generated itself over time where when you say legacy and when you say legacy to certain folks, folks don't know what you're talking about. When a legacy, what are you saying to me when you say legacy? I need to work toward a legacy to keep for my children or posterity. I would suspect that there's a, a growing number of people who have no concept of that. You know, that whole notion of community and legacy and, you know, um, preserving or conserving the community in such a way that it'll, it'll be something that you would pass on generationally. So there's some there's some groundwork that has to be done prior to, you know, the kind of training that we're talking about that I think is significant. You know, I think I think uh, uh, Reverend Jackson is right. I mean, there, there's a lot of work that has to go into. And and, and to be quite frankly. When I talk to, to the young professional now, I don't hear a lot of them talking about they're getting ready to commit to that kind of work. You well, know, because that, that work is self-sacrificial. No, It's like talking about legacy without talking about the community. But I think, I think when we have conversations about legacy, right, we, we have to have a, a true conversation. Are we talking about individual legacy? Are we talking about collective legacy that comes from familial last names and from neighborhood legacy pieces, right? And so individual legacy, I think we have all bought into the um, manifest destiny, individualistic, uh, Cartesian mindset that says, hey, I need to build a legacy for myself. I want a statue in front of the United Center for myself, right? And so everybody's running after, after that. But I think when we start having conversations about collective legacy, that's a different. That's a different story. I don't think everybody talks about that in the same way. I, I want to go just back, and then I'll just I'll bring it back and connect it back to where we were. But I think when we talk about soul care and we talk about taking care of ourselves and taking care of uh, like the the peace, then that we need to go back and reclaim some things. I, I don't necessarily disagree, but I guess I have to shift it to a mindset of 
we have to move forward um, as we are looking back, trying to reclaim those things, but we have to move forward because uh, four people died this month alone at the hands of the state, right? And uh, or was at least condoned and upheld by the state. And so as we, as we think through this, right, there has to be a current component to our strategy, and then there has to be a long-term uh, component to the strategy, right? I think what, what's being done now, we have to give folks some tools right now, today, of how we need to interact with uh, the, 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 the state and, and, and the police and how they're supposed to navigate day to day, right? But then I think we also have to set that long-term vision that says, we're going to rebuild our community. Right now, I don't know how you plan on doing that, but we're going to rebuild our community. I think there can be several ways of achieving that. I think one of the ways that can be achieving that is like here, like the best thing that you can do, right? Because we all start with our most central community, which is our family, right? Our family of origin. Maybe sometimes the best thing that we can do is say, hey, you and your family, if, you, if at all possible, buy homes on the same block, right? Like that's a central way that you can then start to galvanize community and start to rebuild that fear, right? Because if you and your family and two families are the ones on that block, like y'all, you'll know each other, there's a higher potential, you'll know each other, there's a higher potential that you'll interact with each other across the way. Kids will have those interactions and the community can potentially grow from there. I think there also has to be some more structural things that we need to do in terms of community because I think community is more than just homes, it's, it's connected to businesses, it's connected to governance, it's connected to, um, to economic uh, exchange and interchange, and it's connected um, to policies and things of that nature. So I think community is a little bit even broader than just, oh, we're all in the same space, or we all have this one shared feature, but I think we have to get back to a little bit of all of that, but we got to have something intermediate. What, what are we doing right now, right? What are we doing right now to protect our scattered um, allegiance to being to black folks. Well, can I ask no, a question? So, uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just Absolutely. want to ask a quick question. I mean, like, so in that idea, and this kind of connects to, I guess, what uh, Dr. Jones was just saying um, about this legacy idea. Do you think that we are struggling with even the idea of thinking of black people as a collective, as its own? entity or have we all gotten to this individualized uh, it's me and mine like do you think that we're there no i, I think i think <laughs> go ahead josh no I, I think that's i think that's what it what it is so when we're talking about community the, the understanding of community like there's this common unity but even if you go to looking at fellowship and obviously i'm going on the biblical side here this this koinonia right this there's this idea this co-suffering and I think this is what, what really has destroyed us as a people in terms of the collective mindset. That individualism has really run rampant in it. So even though we're all witnessing the same thing, we're experiencing it in isolation. I, I, who, who's, who, are, who are we processing with? Who, who's talking to us? Who are we talking to when we witness what, you know, what happened in Minneapolis? Who, who, who do we go talk to? Who do we sit down with and say, this is how I'm feeling? Who asked me and checked on me to say, man, like, are you doing okay? Tell me what you're thinking. What, what's about to happen? And I think because of the individualism and that, even though we're all experiencing it together, we're experiencing it by ourselves. And I'm not co-experiencing with anybody else. I'm not having a fellowship or relationship with anybody else to help me process this and to work through this in a healthy way. 
that even when we get together collectively, like they're doing for these what should be peaceful protests, you have some people who are just really raging. They're just frustrated and angry, and they're not thinking rationally. So you have some people who are processed, there are some people who have been collected, but then others who haven't. And that's one of the things that happened when we did have a community, one of the things that the black church did well, we had a co-lament, we could lament together and suffer. We got a chance to come together and to talk through things and to suffer together and to speak about what we were experiencing together so that when we did have a strategy in place and when things broke down, we had a place to come back to and to talk about it again so that we could re-energize ourselves and that we could get ourselves back on an even place. I think that's what I'm I think we've, we've lost that element so that when we have situations like this, people are all over the board in what they're experiencing and how they're going to respond to that experience. How do we get it back? We don't have anybody to talk. How do we get I, it back? I really believe. I, I'm so I, I'm When I say that the clinician aspect of this cannot be, we can't miss that. And I know that, unfortunately, we have a almost a stigma in some of our communities, of black communities, of you know going to talk to therapists and getting. We we can't miss that. Our, our black pastors, we have to do a so we we have missed this. We, we really have, and you know maybe it's you know we bought too much into the westernized understanding of the gospel. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a lot of things. But that aspect of being a pastor again which is being in homes with people, processing with people, being people in the office and hopefully not doing any malpractice because there's some things that you are not trained to do as a pastor. But the black church provided that space, even if we didn't do all the work as pastors and as, as church clergy, we provided the space for those things to happen, for those conversations to happen. Because what I'm, what I'm saying in, in a very simple place is that when, when these things happen, there are some of us who we've seen this so many times that we've actually just become desensitized to. It's just another one. It's like a DJ Khaled attack. It's just it's another one. To the point that I've taught myself that I just need to stuff this so I can go do my day to day job, and I just hope that some white person doesn't bring it up so that I lose it. Well, those feelings didn't go away. You just stuffed them down, and so a lot of us have been stuffing this. And so we just, another one happens, another one happens. And if we're not talking about it at church, if I'm not talking about it with friends, if I'm not talking about it with family, if I'm not going to counseling and talking about if I never talk about it, sooner or later, those feelings are going to come out somewhere. You can't just keep hiding them forever. They're going to come out somewhere. And so... Do we have time? The, do we have time for this reconstruction? I, well, I know we get to the end of our time today. And so okay. we need to do this. We need to do this again so that we can do a part two. But my, 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 my ending question is, do we have based on the kind of numbers that we're starting to see happen in the community, based on the rioting that's taking place in Kentucky and in, in Minneapolis, it's getting it's starting to jump off in Detroit. It's starting to jump off in some of the southern the southern states. Do we have the time to do the necessary work that you're talking about to do the healing that's that's essential? for things to change in our community. And I'm going to give you all the last word. Uh, I, I would argue that we um, we are behind the A-ball, yes, but we don't have the time to not. Um, we, we have to respond in some kind of way. Um, and that is also, we can't divorce the fact that we are still in the middle of a pandemic. So even if something as simple as a hug, 
is it's hard to combat sometimes when you're when people are considering their health and we have so many health disparities if people actually contract this virus that they um probably will feel like they can't go find the resources that they need to even be well so there's that element as well um because folks have been self-isolating or, or social distancing um or really physically distancing for the last few months so um but we have to we have to do something. We have to talk to each other. We have to communicate. Um, we have to embrace each other and um, break down these barriers because I think that what Je Reverend Jackson said is absolutely right. People are frustrated and upset. I'll never forget um, getting up myself personally um, when I went to church the Sunday after George Zimmerman's um, or that Sunday morning when they released what actually happened with George Zimmerman that he got off after Trayvon Martin and I was sitting in church and the um, whoever presented the message at that on that day like mom was the word they went about the service as if nothing was going on and I literally got up and walked out of church because I was just like I cannot believe that I'm sitting in church right now and no one cares that this man is walking free after killing this boy. And that has I've carried that hurt since that time. Um, and if you never get to process and deal with that type of stuff, then you have what we have now where people are just angry and it's just turning into and, and it's a lot of people. Destructive. And exactly. And it's a lot of people. It's, a, it's lot a, lot of people. a lot of people. Absolutely. So it's right. a whole lot of us. No, I, 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 I agree. I think we have to heal. We have to heal the community, but I think we have to, we have to take time and, and, and do it ourselves, right? Like I, like to a certain extent, right? Like, and, and Josh and I, we've talked about this hundreds of times, right? The pursuit of whiteness, right, has stolen so much of our community oh, time, right. of our communal time that we have, we have, we need to, we need to reclaim our time. Like Auntie said, we need to reclaim our time so that we can actually do some of this care and do some of these things, right? We can't keep going and slaving on somebody else's job that's not producing anything for us. No level of ownership, no level of economic freedom for us. Um, we got to quit slaving on those jobs and those things so that we can then actually produce some time together and maybe produce some ownership together, right? Um, and, and this, what I'm saying is really targeted more towards our quote-unquote black middle-class folks, right? The, the, the white-collar folks that... Um, aren't owning anything in the community. And matter of fact, we're doing more harm because we have chosen to move out of the spaces that probably need to see us up close and see that they have some more options up close and be in community there and provide um, some form of listening and leadership in those spaces. We, we've done this to the community. We left. We got to own it. We did this. Us? Us? Is we did us it. Yes. Yeah. Black, black middle class did it. We, we came out to the to the Sherevilles and the and the and the Valparaisos and the and the and the and the, and the Counts and all these other places, right? We came out to those places, right? We went to uh, the Mesquites and the Plano's and the Sunnyvales and the Forneys uh, down in the Dallas area. Like we we went out to the Antiochs and the, and the <laughs> <Missouri> <laughs> like City we went, and right? Like yeah. we we went we went out away from where East where our Memphis. people were. Yeah. Right. And so yeah, it's 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 on us. We have we have to be strategic and reposition ourselves in in in, in community with people. Well folks, this has been an exciting, exciting conversation. And I would ask for you to commit to at least two more times, you know, so that we could we could get it all out and get it all in. Uh, Byron, I want to thank you so much for bringing these two young, wonderful people 
you know, into the conversation. And, and we probably need to expand this platform. You know, we probably need to zoom it out to as many people as we can get in, you know, get in conversation with as a start to build the infrastructures that we've been talking about. Uh, anybody with the time left, anybody got a last word for us? Or are we done? There's no time? Well, until next time, morning black folks, WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial, talking about those things that are important in our community and communities around the world. Till next time, morning black.